Thank you for listening to the Celebration Church podcast. For more information about Celebration Church, go to ccacron.org. There you will find information about our church, upcoming events, and how to make a contribution to the ministry of Celebration Church. We hope this message is an encouragement to you. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited to start our new series this evening entitled The Great Awakening, a study of past revivals. And uh, I hope that you're excited because I'm very excited about this. Um, And I want to encourage you to bring people, invite people to come to this study. I find that most Christians don't know our heritage. We don't know our spiritual heritage. We don't know um, about Pentecost. We, we really don't know about Pentecost, especially in modern church. We've uh, forsaken the doctrines and teachings of, of Pentecostal Christianity. And we, you know, you say Azusa Street, and most people are like, what are you talking about? And uh, so I want to encourage you uh, to come and to bring people to the teaching. Tonight, we're going to start with Lesson 1. And you should have received a handout when you came in. If you did not receive that, uh, make sure you just lift your hand. Anybody not have one of those? Okay, awesome. And uh, I have nine pages of notes tonight that you received. I don't know that we're going to get through all nine pages. <laughs> that would be a miracle. So I'm going to do my best to get as far as I can. Um, I, will, I will go through the notes, but I won't stick to the notes. And uh, so... Make sure you take notes and just kind of follow along with me. But, uh, amen. We all settled, all's good. Okay. Well, I want to start off this evening by reading Second Chronicles chapter 7, a verse that I'm sure that many of you are familiar with or have heard before. I'm actually going to preach on this on Sunday. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 says, If my people... Are you his people tonight? Amen. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I just want to say this and preface why I'm teaching this. If there is ever a day, if there is ever a generation that needs the, the reviving, awakening power of the Holy Ghost in their day and their age, it's this generation. If there's ever a generation that needs the touch of God, that needs to understand revival and awakening, it's this generation. And so I believe that as we take a look at scriptures, we take a look at history, that it gives us a glimpse of what God wants to do in our day and in our generation. Is every revival the same? No. Is everything that God does a copy of the past? No. But there's, there are things that we can learn from generations gone by that will help us in our generation. Uh, for example, one of those things, you know, the, there's an there's a idea that when you have revival, you have to have services every night of the week. You know, the methodology things. You can kind of learn from from past moves of God and learn the, what works and what doesn't work. And everything that God does is a little different. There's, there's a thought uh, that, that ge- in generations gone by that if you have revival meetings, you got to do, you got to schedule meetings and it's got to be every night of the week. Well, that's just laborious. <laughs> you know, if, if God's on it and the grace of God's on it and that's what God's doing, then amen. But if it's, 
but that's, that is a huge task to take on for the church that God's using to pour out a spirit. That's a huge task. What tends to happen, um, you know, in most situations, we can look, uh, you know, at past revivals. And what tends to happen is the church where God's pouring out a spirit becomes the hub. It becomes the, the watering hole or the Bethesda pool, whatever you want to call it. They end up taking on the financial burden and the, the ministry burden of hosting whatever it is that God is doing, and it becomes a huge burden on the church. And we've seen in, in not so distant past, um, you know, churches that were, were involved in revival that took on great financial debt uh, as, as a result of, of revival. And so I don't know that that's always God's plan. I would rather, I would rather pack this building out three or four times on a Sunday and pray for people all day long and just let it be Azusa Street all over than take on huge financial debt to build a building that will accommodate all those people. You understand what I'm saying? So there's things that we can learn. That's just an example. There's things that we can learn. You know, another great example of this is John Lake. Uh, John Lake had a powerful healing ministry, um, but he went so, so much and so hard that he literally wore his body out. Uh, you know, who knows the effects of the glory of God on our physical bodies, you know, to that level, and then to go that much for that long, that hard, and travel and minister and deal with so many people that wears on your body. And so it began to affect him uh, emotionally and began to affect his family and began to expect, affect him spiritually. Um, Evan Roberts is another great example. Evan Roberts, at the end of his life, led the Welsh Revival and um, powerful, powerful ministry. And 100,000 souls through Wales turned the country of Wales upside down. Was was a huge had a huge effect on Azusa Street. The two were closely linked. And uh, at the end of his life, he got surrounded by a, a woman that had bad doctrine, basically, and it, it influenced him. And he started getting off into demonic and not not being demonic, but you know everything's a spiritual warfare and all the you know all that kind of stuff and uh, you know so it kind of got a little weird there at the end but had a powerful ministry and so you can learn from all of these folks nobody's perfect if you you know sometimes we look at look at these people as we will tonight and uh, the, in the coming weeks, you'll look through and you'll see, man, that just doesn't line up. Man, that's just weird. You know, I can't believe they would teach that or they would do that or why would they handle it that way? And you begin to look and, and it becomes very easy to become critical. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And so we can become very critical sometimes or judgmental. And I just want to remind all of us, one, we weren't there. We didn't have the, the revelation that they had or the ministry that they had. And then number two... What we always say is chew the meat and spit out the bones. There's going to be things in everyone's ministry you're not going to agree with. There's always going to be something that, that you can find that you can find in us. You're going to find things with us that you don't agree with or you don't like. But chew the meat, spit out the bones. Let's stay on the same course. Let's keep moving the same direction. And uh, I, So I just want to encourage you as we look through this, let it be a lesson um, and uh, a good stretching for you. So the first thing I want to take a look at, that quote there at the top of your page by Maria Woodworth Eddard, says, you can't do a ministry like this if you're afraid to take risk and if you're afraid of what people might think about you. You know, that's so true. Revival will cost you something. 
Revival will cost you. Awakening will cost you something. It will cost you your friends. It will cost you ministry time. It will cost you. It will cost you your pride, your humility. Uh, it will cost you. It will cost you your, your sleep. It will, cost you, it will cost you your effort and your energy. Revival is expensive. The anointing, the presence of God is freely given But the cost to steward what God is doing, the cost to steward the gift of God is very expensive. And uh, we will see this, you know, as Maria Woodworth Etter and others began to take a step out in ministry to do things that hadn't been done before. To step out and to say that God still heals the sick. Divine healing is still part. You know, we take that for granted. We, you know, there are people around us in today's culture that will, you know, say divine healing is, you know, the cessationist theology that it went out with the apostles. But by and large, most people accept divine healing as part of the covenant of salvation, right? Every once in a while you'll run into people, but it's, it's widely accepted. At this time and what we're going to look at, it wasn't accepted. It was not an accepted doctrine. So for people to, to take a stance and believe in divine healing and believe God and minister to the sick, that was, they, they were laying their reputation on the line. And so when we, when we say, God, we want to be a church that's, that is a revival church, we want to be a church that can house the glory of God. We want to be people that are, that are firebrands in the hands of God to light a city ablaze. If that's really what your prayer is and your heart's desire, which I hope to God it is, it is it's ours. It's ours. Lord, come set our lives ablaze. Let us burn for you. If that's really your desire, then you're laying it all on the line. You'll lay your reputation on the line. You know, you'll lay your ministry on the line. All of it. Because everybody will have something to say about it. But you have to be willing to take the risk. Is it, is it worth the risk? Is it worth the risk laying down your life so that others can experience the, the touch of heaven on this side of, of eternity? Well, let me set the stage for you here. We're going we're gonna to start, before we get into the 20th century, I'm going to zero in on the 20th century revivals. Uh, as we as we do this series, I may go back once we get through. The, there's a lot to cover in the 20th century, so once we get through the 20th century, I may jump back. But to set the stage, we have to understand what was happening at the end of the 19th century. To set the stage for um, what God was doing or going to do in the 20th century, we have to. Under, it's okay. God was calling, and he had to run out and take that phone call. Um, so. You know, to order, in order to understand what was going to happen in the 20th century, we have to understand where things were at the 19th century. And if you're a history person, I love history. I love studying history. I hope I don't bore you. I'm, I, I will do my best to give you the details, but to make it entertaining as well. I don't want to bore you. But it really isn't that boring. It's actually quite entertaining. Um, but at the end of the 19th century, we find the United States in a, in a period of reconstruction. If you remember the Civil War, 1865, all of those things. Well, 1865 to 1877 time frame, we find the United States in a place of reconstruction. You know, you, have, you still have slaves in the South. You definitely, there's a lot of segregation still. You have the black codes, all of those things going into place. And in the middle of all that, you find the church. In the middle of all that, you find God stirring.
stirring up the church for what's to come. And uh, you'll find some of these key players that were involved at the end of the 19th century began to reach out to the African-American community, which was, uh, which was not uh, commonplace, and actually created a lot of ruckus for some of them to begin uh, to reach out. Matter of fact, um, one of them we'll take a look at, Phoebe Palmer, we'll talk about her in a second, but she, she was a woman preacher, uh, which was very uncommon anyway, <laughs> And then not only was she a woman preacher, but she began to reach out into the African-American community and had great influence in the African-American community. And so it, it caused a lot of trouble, a lot of strife for her that we'll, we'll take a look at. So anyway, that's the 19th century uh, in the U.S. as far as civil war. Reconstruction and all of that, that's just letting you know that that was what was happening. That's the time frame that we're talking about. And in the middle of all this, there's a stirring that starts taking place that you may be familiar with. It was called the Holiness Movement. The Holiness Movement began to take place towards the end of mid to end of the 19th century. The Holiness Movement was based on the doctrine of entire sanctification uh, or Christian perfection. Now, and hopefully you can follow along with me on the notes on the screen. But uh, Christian, Christian perfection or entire sanctification is basically the doctrine of what we would call today sinless perfection. It's the doctrine that says that once you become a Christian, that there is a work of God in your life secondary to salvation that will cause you to not live in sin, that you won't live in sin anymore. Well, obviously we all know that's biblical error. <laughs> and so sin sinless perfection or Christian perfection uh, was a doctrine that John Wesley taught. Actually, West, John Wesley and Whitfield, if you'll remember, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the most influential man uh, in America at the time of the Revolutionary War. And many claim that the, the Revolutionary War started not because of any other man but George Whitfield, uh, that he was more influential than George Washington. And, uh, and, very, and, very, and very probably so was. I mean, this man was going and he was traveling the colonies and preaching all up and down the colonies, became the evangelist of the Great Awakening. And, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards was the pastor. If you've heard us talk about these guys, you know, you know a little bit from what we've said. I would encourage you to go study your history. This is powerful stuff. And so Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were buds. It was the pastor evangelist. And then you've got John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Of course, they were brothers. And they were actually George, George Whitfield. Let me back up. George Whitfield's conversion was a result of Charles Wesley's mom giving George Whitfield the book by Henry Skugel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Now, you've probably heard me talk about, um, those of you that were in Heather's Bethesda class and studied George Whitfield, all this is tracking, um, but many of you have probably heard me talk about uh, Henry Skugel. Henry Skugel was an insignificant man. He wrote a 60-page letter to a friend that was later published called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, and a hundred or whatever years later, uh, Charles Wesley's mom picks up the book and gives it to George Whitfield, who's in college and has an awakening as a result of that book, gets bored again and becomes the evangelist that we know as a result of that. Absolutely powerful story. And so George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles, they were all contemporaries. They were all friends, actually. They were all very close friends. And they had a disagreement about this doctrine 
entire sanctification or Christian perfection, sinless perfection. They had a huge falling out over it. Matter of fact, Whitfield said that at the time of the conversation between him and John Wesley, that if anyone were around, they would have heard them weeping and wailing over the loss of their, their, their brotherhood, their friendship over this doctrine, that they could not reach a place of agreement. It was that intense of an argument and concern. George Whitfield believed that, that uh, sanctification was progressive, that we were set apart by God, but then the, the life of sanctification is progressive. It's an ongoing process. And he talked about the sovereignty of God, that God, God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation, that God draws us in, God convicts us, he draws us in, and we're born again as a result of the Spirit of God drawing us and convicting us. And Wesley didn't believe that. Wesley uh, was, was on the other side of the coin when it came to salvation. And so that became the, the great debate. That was the doctrine that fueled the holiness movement. So the Methodist Church in the, in the late 19th century calls for revival. They're asking God for revival. Remember, Wesley was the founder of the Methodism movement. And so they're, ever since Wesley was around, they're publishing Wesley's work that taught, and I've got the title of all that in your notes, but they're, they're publishing his work on the, on the account of entire sanctification in their discipleship program. And so they're, uh, you know, this is what they're learning, is entire sanctification. And it's fueling the fire to live holy, to live a life of purity, to live a sinless life. And, and people are being convicted and challenged to live a sinless life. And that then births the holiness movement. Now, let me talk about this second work of grace, as they called it. Because you'll begin to understand kind of where we're at today with some things. The second work of grace that, that they called a sanctifying work, the, the holiness movement called it the baptism in the Holy Ghost, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they called it a, the second work of grace, but they called it the baptism in the Holy Spirit or baptism by fire to live a sinless life, to live a sanctified life, but never associated tongues with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so they were teaching that the baptism in the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with tongues, that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was to live a sinless life. You see the difference? And so what was birthed, what came out of that, actually the Nazarene church, the Assemblies of God is actually a result of the Nazarene church. The Nazarene church taught that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was for sanctification, not uh, not connected with tongues or praying in the Spirit. And so when, when Azusa Street happened, when Pentecost, the, you know, the Pentecostal movement came on the scene and, and Pentecost tongues began to break out and began to happen, which we'll set the stage for momentarily, uh, it revolutionized everybody's thinking. It challenged everybody's thing. All of a sudden, now we're associating the baptism in the Holy Spirit with tongues and not just sanctification. And it it created a great divide. And so that's where you have the Assemblies of God, the Foursquare Church. A lot of these folks that were once holiness, that, that taught that baptism in the Holy Spirit was just sanctification, now were speaking in tongues, now understood the, the purpose and, and really what the baptism in the Holy Spirit was all about, and they, they changed. They moved away from the Nazarene. They moved away from CMA, which we'll talk about, and they began to start Pentecostal denominations. Y'all's tracking with me. So some influences there at the bottom of page one of the early holiness movement. One, the Reformation. Um, of course, all of us that are Protestant in our faith 
really trace our roots back to the Reformation. Uh, I, I can go on and on on all of this for hours, and, and I don't want to do that because I want to stick to the topic. But the Reformation, Martin Luther, who nailed the theses to the door and said, it's by grace alone, by faith alone. It's not the, it's not the penance, penance. It's not all of those things. It's, it's about the grace of God. And I would encourage you, if you haven't studied Luther, go study Luther. There's a great movie. We'll loan it to you or let you know what, it, what the name of it is. You can get a great movie on Martin Luther uh, on, on Christian liberty. There's another great book by Luther on Christian liberty. It's a little mini black book that will change your life. It is at the resource table. I'm being yelled at. That's awesome. Um, Another influence of the, the holiness movement was the Puritanism. Of course, you have the pilgrims coming to America saying it's <laughs> stick to the word of God. <laughs> we don't need, uh, you know, the five solas. If you go back to the pilgrims, man, I'm just throwing out all sorts of stuff. If you go back to the five solas, when the pilgrims came by grace alone, by faith alone, by the word alone, um, by prayer. Anyways, five solas. I need to look those up. I need to look those up for next week. I can't believe I can't think of all of them off the top of my head. Quakers. Yeah, look those up for me. Quakers. Of course, the Quakers uh, teaching that you could experience God and, and have a revelation of God influence that. We know George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards were great influences in the holiness movement and that they taught initial conversion. There was a de- definitive experience of salvation. Uh, Moravians. Anybody familiar with the Moravians? Heard that name? So that was a sect. You're tracking. I, you're like all over this. I'm loving it. Um, the uh, Moravians were a sect of the the Lutheranism, but part of the Lutheran movement that said we got to get back to the foundations of what we were taught. So it was awesome. So all of these things played into a part of what was happening, what we call the Holiness Movement. Now the Pentecostal movement and Holiness Movement are separate. So understand that, that the holiness movement really was taking place at the end of the 19th century, and it's different from um, the Pentecost. Faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, God's glory alone. Five solas. So that's what the pilgrims wrote, and that was their stand. The five solas, that's uh, what they taught, and that was the influence. Grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, God's glory alone, and Christ alone. Um, which, Lord, if we, would, if we could just get back to those. <laughs> if America would just get back to what, what our founding fathers came here with, you know, really. Um, anyway, so that's the, that's the holiness movement, Pentecostal movement, separate in that um, the, the Pentecostal leaders found their origins in the holiness movement, but they, were, they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues and began to teach the evidence of speaking in tongues. So... Uh, There on your notes, page 2, letter G, I love this. There are an estimated 78 million, this is today, there are an estimated 78 million classical Pentecostals. Classical Pentecostals are those that teach the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Classical Pentecostals and 510 million assorted Charismatics. Charismatics, when we say Charismatics, it's people that have variations, but they believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They have variations on the evidence and the manifestations. Um, But 510 million who share a heritage or common beliefs with the Pentecostal movement. If the holiness movement and Pentecostal Charismatic Christians were counted together, the total population around the world would be 600 million today. That's unbelievable. 600 million, all of that 
started in the late 19th century and exploded at the start of the 20th century. And today we're affected that, that greatly by what God did at the turn of the 20th century. Incredible. So some of the people uh, that I, I want to give you some names, some people that are forerunners. Hopefully we'll show you their pictures too. Uh, yes? Okay. Yeah, we do. Okay. A, that's A.J. Gordon. So we'll talk about A.J. Gordon first. So he was 1836 to 1895. So A.J. Gordon, uh, I don't have a ton of information here in your notes on him, but basically he was uh, in divine healing ministry. He was a part of the holiness movement. He founded the Gordon College and Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary. He wrote a lot of hymns, one that you're probably familiar with, My Jesus, I Love Thee. That hymn is in most hymn books. It's like in 90% of all the hymn books ever written. So, you know, this guy's a big deal. He was a part of the healing uh Healing, uh, holiness movement and healing movement that took place within the holiness movement, which we'll talk about. Number two, A.B. Simpson. How many of you are familiar with A.B. Simpson? I'm sure in this area, a lot of people are familiar with A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson spent a lot of time in the Akron area. Uh, he's uh, mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in the Akron area. He founded uh, CMA, Christian and Missionary Alliance. Again, let me just pause there. Christian Missionary Alliance, which was A.W. Tozer was a part of. Of course, A.W. Tozer is buried in Ellet, and um, he was he was called into ministry in Akron. That's why he's here. <laughs> he wasn't saved here. He didn't live here not long, but he was called into ministry here, so he was buried here. And um, so CMA, they, they have very similar beliefs to Pentecostals, but the variance is that um, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not associated with tongues. It's sanctifying work. It will produce... Um, A.B. Simpson taught that if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, that the, um, the evidence of that would be a fruitful ministry. The evidence of that would be uh, a sanctified life, but he didn't necessarily associate tongues with it. And that was, that was the disconnect. Actually, he had... Uh, A.B. Simpson had this college, Nyack College in Nyack, New York, and um, after Azusa Street happened, you have all of these ministers who are from the holiness movement who are are very well familiar with A.B. Simpson, very well familiar with his work. Uh, A.B. Simpson really was a pioneer with the divine healing movement. Um, he, He came in contact with Charles Kulis, which we'll talk about here in a second, who was a Divine, divine healing movement in the holiness time. And uh, A.B. Simpson is very well known in these holiness leaders. And so all of these people who are getting baptized in the Holy Spirit say, hey, I know a good college to go to. And so they went to his school and received training. Um, and so the, his school, the CMA school, became very influential with the Assemblies of God, Foursquare, and so forth, but, but was was differing in the evidence, the initial physical evidence. Uh, One of the things uh, that you'll notice about A.B. Simpson is that A.B. Simpson taught a four-square gospel. Now, let me just explain that because it's a little different than what we're familiar with. A.B. Simpson taught that Jesus saves, Jesus heals, Jesus is coming back, but the difference in what we know is Jesus sanctifies. And so Amy Simple uh, McPherson, if you how many of you remember Amy, Sister Amy, Sister Amy was a part of all of this time frame as well. Um, or yes, she was. She was in the 20th century. She really comes to the forefront after Azusa Street, but she began to teach a four square gospel. 
that Jesus saves, Jesus heals, Jesus baptizes in the Holy Ghost, and he's coming back. And so today, our four square, that is what Foursquare Gospel is. But the origins of that, you can see the connection to A.B. Simpson. So there was a lot of foundational there from the holiness movement. So A.B. Simpson, he was a pastor of the Presbyterian Church. He pastored two very large churches and was a very successful pastor until he came in contact with the Divine Healing Movement and uh, received healing and ministry from Charles Kulis. And he said, okay, there's more to this. So he left the Presbyterian denomination and then started CMA. Um, course we talked about his connection he actually um well we'll get there there's a lot there's a lot to cover and, and I'll, I'll get there i'm sure one of these folks y'all tracking so far ab simpson all right so the next person this is a person you really need to know phoebe palmer there's a good old picture of Phoebe. So Phoebe Palmer was from 1807 to 1874 phoebe was one of the most influential people of the holiness movement um, she really pioneered the path for women in ministry. She wrote a book, The Promise of the Father, that talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit for sanctification and argued her point about women in ministry and really became the leader. She was the one I mentioned earlier that had a great inroads with the African-American community and caused a lot of uh, strife within the church that didn't like her, the denominations that didn't like that. Um, she was, her sister had a Tuesday morning prayer meeting and Miss Lankford had this Tuesday morning prayer meeting going on, and her uh, Phoebe comes in and she starts leading, helping lead these meetings. Well, these meetings turn into the Tuesday meeting for the promotion of holiness meetings that at first would be like a women's small group. All the women were coming, they were praying, and, and, and they were having a great time. Well, then God starts moving in the middle of it, and word starts getting out about Phoebe's ministry, and hundreds of ministers, bishops, ministers, and all these people start coming to hear Phoebe teach, men and women. And so her, her teachings began to spread, and she really began to fuel the, the holiness movement through her teachings. She then taught about the baptism in the Holy Spirit for sanctification. Um, she, the, actually the book that I referenced earlier, The, the Promise of the Father, became an influence for Catherine Booth. How many of you remember William Booth with the Salvation Army? So that was launched all during the holiness movement. And if, if you've ever read William Booth's uh, testimony of the vision or you've seen the video, someone created a video for it. It's a powerful uh, vision that he had of Jesus rescuing sinners and it birthed the Salvation Army. Catherine Booth, his wife, was influenced by Phoebe Palmer. And so you see how all these people are interconnected, uh, which you'll, you'll find that uh, in, in, in moves and in great moves of God and awakenings. There, there are a lot of interconnected, we call them camps. <laughs> Uh, that's the term we use. You'll have the, for us, you want know, to say we're a part of the river camp or the revival river camp. And then you've got the, you got the Brownsville camp and Toronto camps. You got all the, and they're all influenced by different folks. Uh, but they're all kind of out of the same area or same, same style of ministry, if you will. And that's kind of what's happening here. Um, she took John Wesley's perfectionism, divided. She actually helped teach and, and propagate John Wesley's teaching. 
that the teaching was broken down into three steps, consecrating oneself totally to God, believing that God will sanctify what is consecrated, and telling others about it. And so that was her approach. Through her ministry, she saw over 25,000 people converted. Obviously, she had a significant ministry. And uh, one of her quotes there at the bottom of page three, earnest prayers, long fasting, and burning tears may seem befitting, but cannot move the heart of infinite love to a greater willingness to save. God's time is now. The question is not what have I been or what do I expect to be, but am I now trusting in Jesus to save to the uttermost? If so, I am now saved from all sin. It's awesome. So Phoebe Palmer is one that you would want to take, a, take note of. W.E. Boardman. 1810 to 1886, he was the founder of the Higher Life Movement. He had the publication, The Higher Christian Life, and uh, incredible ministry. He was the one that began to influence the Baptist uh, in regards to the holiness movement. You see, um, with regards to him, you see some of the, uh, you can see where the once saved, always saved ideology comes in. Like, can I say this about that? Once saved, always saved. A lot of people equate to Calvinistic or, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards. They quote the, you know, they equate that to them. That's not what they taught. It's not what Calvin taught. It's not what Edwards taught. It's not what Whitfield taught. Once saved, always saved is a doctrine that was morphed. It became out of all of this hubba-juba. So go back and study. <laughs> it's not what they taught. Um, Lucy Drake, she was healed under Cullis' ministry. She began to travel with Boardman, and they began to do healing crusades. So again, involved in the healing ministry. He did a lot with uh, A.B. Simpson. This guy partnered with A.B. Simpson to do the conference in London that really spawned the healing movement in the holiness movement. There was, you know, you have the holiness movement going on, and within that movement, there's an awakening for divine healing. Boardman and Simpson were, and Cullis were kind of the lead instigators with all of that. They were out leading the charge. Um, of course, Cullis there is next. You can go through and read your notes um, on him. He was the faith homes guy. He started faith healing homes. There's a picture of him on the screen. Uh, you know, so this guy has a significant ministry with healing homes, healing ministry. He was the guy that published Hannah Winall Smith, The Secret to a Happy Christian Life. That's a very influential book. She was, uh, Smith was the leader of the higher life movement in Britain. And she wrote a book about having, a, how to be a happy Christian that's still, still in print today. <laughs> this guy published it. So it's a great, uh, great book. National Camp Meeting Association, that's what became the Holiness Movement Association. John Inskip led that. And uh, basically, the Methodist movement came together, said, we need revival. Let's start having camp meetings. And so they started, they met in Pittsburgh, and the first meeting they had was in New Jersey. And the place was packed, 10,000 people. They said the town where it was being held doubled in size overnight. People were camping out, putting up tents, and the power of God fell. A lot of these guys had signs and wonders, healing ministries, and a lot of them were known for people that would fall out in their meetings under the power of God. They said that they would fall out, slain in the spirit, and lay for hours under the glory. And many people who were not converted would get up off the floor and, and become converted as a result of that experience. Um, so a lot of, a lot of good, you know, so being slain in the spirit, falling, all that stuff, not new. <laughs> that was just been going on since Jesus day. <laughs> you know, when Jesus looked at the, at the 500 soldiers and said, I am he, and they all fell. 
It's been going on a long time. It's been going on in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon was dedicating the temple and the glory of the Lord filled the house. That's where the verse we just read, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. He was dedicating the temple and the glory hit the place and nobody could stand up. So that's been going on a long time. Um, there's some great quotes here under the National Camp Meeting Association. I encourage you to read those, talking about the power of God hitting the places. John Inskip, um, he was the guy that led that. He took charge. He was the leader of the holiness movement. This guy right there on the screen, he was the leader of the holiness movement and, and kind of took charge of the holiness association. He was a fiery preacher. They, were, they said that he was an energetic preacher and loved his wife. He, he couldn't. You know, the two, if they were ever separate, they could tell he was different when his wife wasn't around. (laughs) Um, Carrie Chud Montgomery. (laughs) She's another one. That's why I told it. Actually, Carrie Judd Montgomery was an invalid who received healing by getting a letter and she received a letter of prayer and was healed, and she began to minister. People heard about her healing, and they wanted to get a part of it. Maria Woodworth Etter, she was in, in, in the middle of all this. Uh, there's a lot of notes there. I would encourage you to go read her notes. Maria Woodworth Etter was here in the uh, 1890s and was leading uh, revival meetings here in the Akron area. She was very influential in this area as well. Uh, by the way, let me say thank you to Kathy Ripple, who's one of our interns, and uh, I gave our interns an assignment a few months back to research revivals in, our hi- in, in this area, in history, in, the, in this area. And she did an incredible job, went over and above, and has brought a ton of information to me on revivals in this area. So I'll be sharing some of that information with you as we teach on this, because there's a lot of great history that many people probably, you know, we know Catherine Kuhlman, but most of us probably didn't realize uh, that Edward uh, Woodworth Edder had a lot of influence here as well. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot more to come. But uh, anyway, she got baptized in the Holy Spirit at a Quaker meeting. Interesting enough, um, John Alexander Dowie. Dowie, he's the guy that started Zion, Illinois. You know, he couldn't smoke, couldn't drink, couldn't eat pork, and uh, you know, it was it was a healing town. Had a lot of healings, but was he thought he was Elijah. <laughs> he dressed up as Elijah, thought he was Elijah. He was preparing the way of the Lord. Had a lot of financial, lot of financial mismanagement. He's got a lot of negative around him. He would be one of those guys that you would look at and say, ooh, I'm not sure I want to study him. But he's got a very interesting ministry, very powerful ministry, and, and was very, understood his authority as, as a leader. Uh, but it did some strange things. <laughs> Denominations that were formed out of the holiness movement, you have the Church of God, you have the Church of God of Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, the Church of God in Christ, the Church of the Nazarene. All of these churches were founded and formed as a result of the holiness movement. Now, Azusa Street happens, and they all get annihilated. <laughs> so, so hang on with us till next week, and, and we'll talk next week more about Azusa Street and the effect of Azusa Street. But, but all of these folks... Uh, were started in the late 19th century. Now, let me say this about the last guy on page 9, Charles Fox Parham. I would encourage you to go study this, and I'm going to talk about Parham to finish the night and set the stage for next week. Parham is a guy that you need to know about. 
Charles Parham was very influential in what was to take place in the, in the 20th century with the Pentecostal movement. He founded Bethel Healing Home in Topeka, Kansas, called Faith, it was a faith home in 1898. And then in the 1900, he started to have relationship with all these other guys, these holiness guys, Dowie, um, A.B. Simpson. He was, in, he was in all these circles. But as he was doing this in all these circles, he began to question about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He began to wonder what it was all about. Well, he starts a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas, Bethel. And out of this Bible college, he says, he's going away one day, he's, he's leaving town, and he leaves his students with this assignment. I want you to each individually study the baptism in the Holy Spirit and what is the, the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that was all the direction he gave them. So he leaves town, he comes back, and he asks them collectively, what is, what is it that you've studied? What is the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And unanimously, they all said, speaking in tongues. And so it began to shift the thought about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they, began, they did a watch night service, you know, much like we would do. They prayed and began to pray on December 31st, whatever, you know, light, and they're praying in through the next day. January 1st, 1901 rolls around. A significant day in 1900s. 1901, Agnes Osmond gets baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. She goes up to Charles Parham. She says, lay hands on me. I want to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And when he did, she said the fire of God hit her, and she began to pray in tongues as she was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it began to change from that moment on the identity of the baptism in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. Later comes in the scene William Seymour. William Seymour goes to Parham School in Topeka, Kansas, and learns about the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And that's what the Bible evidence is. Stage is set. So we're going to continue on next week. I would encourage, I made it all through nine pages. I didn't cover all of it. I didn't cover all of it, so go read it. This is for you to take, obviously, and go study. And I would encourage you, you know, do research on your own. Look these people up. There's a lot of information online about them, some more than others. Uh, but, but I would encourage you to go study. Awesome. Lord Jesus, we thank you for tonight, Lord. We thank you that we can come and, and take a look at what you've done in years past. And Lord, it can build faith for what's coming in our day. And Lord, we just pray, Father, that you would do it again. Lord, would you do it again? Would you let the fire of Pentecost fall in our generation? Lord, we're, we're a generation that has moved away from the very foundations of our Pentecostal beliefs in true New Testament Christianity. Lord, we need Pentecost. We need Pentecostal fire again. Lord, let it burn. Lord, let it burn. Come do it again in our generation. Lord, let us experience in our day an awakening like they experienced at the turn of our century, the 20th century, Lord, like they experienced on the day of Pentecost. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great evening. Thank you for joining the Celebration Podcast. For more information, visit ccacron.org or call us at 330-762-7458. You can also download the Celebration app from iTunes or the Android store.
with my father is so hard.